Welcome back to Rockstock Channel. It is Tuesday, February 6th, uh, New York time, late in the evening, um, early morning Wednesday in Brisbane, where we have uh, for the first time Sam Catalano at Wilson's Advisory. Uh, this is a follow-up. We had uh, Trent Barnett from Euras Hartley's who put out a note that, you know, lithium prices are too low. Sam at Wilson's uh, has put out a, a similar note about incentive pricing, uh, arguing that lithium prices are too low. We're going to get into that in a minute, along with, uh, you know, who is Sam and what is Wilson Advisory. And uh, Rodney and I will have some questions uh, for him. Uh, and uh, he has a note covering uh, broadly the sector, but he also covers five stocks, which we're going to talk to him about, including Atlantic Lithium, Leo Lithium, Ioneer, Core Lithium, and Liontown. And he has opinions on all of those. And we'll get into that in a minute. But uh, before we do that, just want to remind uh, all our listeners, if you like this channel and this content, uh, please like and subscribe to Rockstock Channel. Hit the notification bell so you never miss a video. And uh, for our Lithium Bull uh, newsletter, uh, please go to our website, rkequity.com and register your email uh, so you can make sure that you get that in a timely manner. Uh, we just published the uh, monthly scoreboard, um, which uh, on Sunday, you know, we called kind of Sunday, bloody Sunday under a blood red sky. Uh, you know, it was all red in uh, January. Uh, we're having a bit of a recovery day today, a bit of a relief rally. I don't know what, but uh, it was after a very negative day uh, yesterday. So we're in volatile times uh, in the lithium space uh, and it's been painful. Um, Rodney and I, uh, joked a little bit uh, a couple of years ago, I, I, I said, uh, talked into this camera here and said, you, you know, there's the ability in lithium space to uh, make life transformational wealth. Um, you know, uh, that also could meet on the downside. Um, so <laughs> Rodney uh, joked in our first uh, interview five years ago that uh, a way to make a small fortune is to uh, start with a large one and uh, then invest in lithium shares. So that, that has been, um, uh, a dynamic here, but we've been here before multiple times, multiple cycles. Before we start today's video, we'd like to thank Lithium Royalty Corp, listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange, ticker symbol LIRC. We'll share more later in the video. Sam, why don't you give your background a bit? We spoke yesterday, really, for the first time. I saw your note. I rang you up. Um, don't know you very long, but uh, you just joined, I, I understand, not too long ago at Wilson's after a long career, you know, at uh, more familiar brand names, you know, in both lithium and outside of lithium. So tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about Wilson's, and then we'll, and a little bit, you know, about your note. Um, and then Rodney and I will ask you some questions. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, guys. Um, so yeah, look, I've been, uh, I've been around as a, as a metals and mining equity research analyst for about 20 years. Uh, as you say, you know, more recently at Wilson's Advisory uh, here in Brisbane, in Australia. Um, but the majority of my career, I'm originally from Brisbane, but the majority of my career I actually spent in London. Um, so I worked in various different mining uh, research teams there, heading up teams at Credit Suisse. So I ended up the European um, mining research there, Credit Suisse, Morgan Stanley, Macquarie Bank. Um, I was on the buy side. I ran a global natural resources fund for Schroders for a few years. Um, immediately prior to this role, I was head of uh, UK mining research, mechanical ingenuity. 
obviously most people in this space know are pretty active in the lithium sector. Um, and then, yeah, recently, after a long time, and prior to, to all that sort of uh, experience in, in the finance sector, I was originally a mining engineer um, working here in, in Queensland, Australia. So uh, very much mining focused. Yeah, that's sort of taken me to all sorts of operations around the world in all different commodities. And clearly, you know, the last sort of five to seven years, it's increasingly meant uh, spending a lot more time on lithium markets, uh, which, which is where I focus a lot. Um, these days. Uh, Wilson's Advisory, you know, we're a, a small mid-cap um, investment bank you know, and, and private wealth management firm, Australia-focused. Um, and you know, my commencement here and, and, and a few other hires in the business is part of our efforts to, to really broaden out our presence in the natural resources space. And obviously, lithium is forming a key part of that um, as we go forward. And look, I think I initiated on the, on the sector uh, in the middle of last year and, and this update that you've referred to that we'll talk a bit more about today is, is part of a sort of big update you know, given the pricing falls we've seen last year. And I think it's worth pointing out, you, know, you talked about volatility in the lithium space just a moment ago, that um, you know, if you look at, and I saw this on LinkedIn actually recently, if you look at a basket of commodities you know, whether across energy and, and industrial commodities over the past 10 years. In six of those years, lithium has either been the best performer or the worst performer. Um, so, you know, that tells you something about this space. I think you need a strong stomach, um, but I think the rewards are there for those that, uh, that can look through that. We call it velocity. <laughs> the speed right. of volatility. So you still, so you think that, you know, it's not a lost cause. You can still make money in lithium. Absolutely. I mean, look, it, it's, and the thing is, it's, you know, while obviously lithium as a, as a sector and an industry has been around for a very long time, I think it's pretty well accepted that we're going through a, a huge structural change in the nature of the industry. It's, it's growing, you know, at, at, a, at a breakneck speed. And, you know, in any commodity market that's growing so swiftly, uh, both on the supply and the demand side, there's going to be mismatches through that journey between supply and demand. You know, and, and we're seeing evidence of that you know, over the course of the last six, 12 months in particular. Um, you know, and, and I think that one thing that perhaps gets overlooked, and we've spoken a little bit about in the notes, and, and what I think arguably a lot of bulls, you know, myself included, probably underestimated to some degree, is the extent to which you know, we had seen stocking or restocking through the supply chain uh, over the course of, you know, from say 2020 to 2020, end of 2022, really, when prices peaked, um, and the extent of the stocks that were there and the impact that the destocking has had over the past 12 months in particular. And I think, you know, that stands as something separate to, to just supply demand, because I think, again, looking at my experience in other commodity markets, when you've got markets that are close to balance, and sure, we're looking for you know, big structural deficits in lithium longer term, but arguably in the near term, you've got something close to a balanced market. When you've got those sorts of conditions, it is actually the, the destocking and the restocking cycles that are really the governing factor behind shorter term price moves. And we've seen that now. And indeed, if we, if we think that it can't go on forever and we do get an end to, to destocking throughout the supply chain, 
then 100%, you know, as we've seen on the downside, the prices can recover very quickly on the upside as well. Okay. Uh, so the title of your note is Lithium Sector in Incentive to Buy, right? So the crux of the argument here is pricing is not currently at incentive pricing. So um, in order for new projects to kind of get online. So could you just, I guess, explain how you arrived at that? And, you know, you said it's based on, you know, it's proprietary incentive price curve. You've looked at 40, uh, you know, undeveloped projects or, uh, you know, in the, in the, I think, uh, spodumene market, you know, and, and, and the carbonate, uh, you know, focused projects. So could you just Explain yeah. to us your methodology and, and what you arrived at, and you have a base case here, and then you have a early recovery case, which uh, I tweeted about yesterday, um, thinking that price could be back to two thousand as early as twelve months from now. Um, we'd all, you know, as bulls and optimists, uh, would love to hope that that's uh, going to be the case. So, but let's kind of get into like your base case and that early recovery case, and just how you built this up. Yeah, absolutely. So, <clears throat> look, I think across most commodity markets and, and your commodity analysis teams, typically long-term pricing and long-term equilibrium, you know, the, the sort of methodology that most of the, the, the market uses is to think about incentive level pricing. So, you know, you look at what you think the long-term capex and the long-term opex of building capacity in a sector is and you say, okay, if we, if we uh, sort of have a minimum hurdle rate of return, um, what does the price need to be? Um, and effectively, we've taken that concept um, in lithium, which again, I think you'll find that most of the investment banks out there that put research out on lithium probably use incentive level pricing to, to get their, their long-term price forecasts. But obviously, you know, just picking one number out of the air or even out of the air or even, even an educated guess, um, you know, there's, there's potential for that to be incorrect. So we've tried to, to use the information that we have to actually look at how sensitive different projects, or the all growth projects might be to, to what the, the lithium price is long term and what price would incentivize different projects. So as you point out, you know, we've gone and looked at, you know, about 40, sort of 43 actually projects across spodumene and um, you know, in, in the carbonates of the chemical space as well. Um, and you know, the criteria for the projects we've looked at are typically there has to be some form of economic study already done. Um, so to give us some idea of CapEx to develop the project, some idea of, of what the operating costs might be. So we don't have every single project that might ever come on board, you know, that, that they may have you know, just declared a resource um, or just starting to, to, to have some, some positive drill results. Um, you know, this is, this is projects for which we have some idea of how the economics might look. And then we've taken each of those projects and built a, a separate independent cash flow model on each of those. Um, so throwing in project capex to build it, um, you know, the, the operating C1 costs, royalties, sustaining capex, and then we backed out what the lithium price, or you know, spodumene in, in the case of those projects, or carbonate in the case of those projects, what the price needs to be to, to actually justify a 15% internal rate of return on that initial capex spent. And the reason why we've used 15% is again, traditionally across most 
commodity markets, um, sort of mainstream established commodities, that's been, a, I guess, a traditional hurdle rate that, say, the big miners like BHP Billiton or Rio Tinto have often used as their hurdle rates. Um, and we backed out lithium prices to what each project needs to get to that price, um, to, 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 get, to get to that hurdle rate, excuse me. So that's given us a curve. Um, I'll talk to that 15% in a moment, whether that's actually an appropriate number. But just to start off with, you know, what the curve has shown um, is that we've talked specifically about our spodumene curve. Um, you know, there's about 20-odd projects just on that curve. Um, over 50% of those projects at current spot prices don't make a 15% IRR. Now, what that tells me is if we're looking forward to a market that, that we'd all agree hopefully is in structural deficit in years to come, as EV demand wraps up and so forth, you know, the market is going to need most, probably all of those projects to actually be developed um, to have any hope of a market being supplied or close to supply. Um, and, you know, at this point, if we're saying, well, half of those projects aren't going to get financed or don't make sense from, to, to make an investment decision, then that's a problem. Um, and prices need to move higher to ensure that, uh, that, that we do incentivize the development of those projects. If you go right up the top of that curve and, and look at around the 90th percentile of that curve, then you're getting long-term spodumene prices in the order of 15 to 1600 dollars a ton and that's sort of what you need to get to around 15 percent irr for the top end of the curve um, and just coming back to that 15 percent you know i mentioned the genesis for that but i think you know i posted this on linkedin yesterday as well there's a strong argument to say that 15 percent required return isn't nearly enough you know in a in a commodity or, or a market such as lithium where you know, we've spoken already in this session about the volatility uh, that we've seen. Most financiers are going to want probably more than 15%, significantly more, 20 25%. Um, additionally, our analysis doesn't include the cost of financing. You know, we're not talking about BHP Billiton and huge internal cash flows. A lot of the projects being developed are you know, companies that don't have any alternative sources of cash and need to fund these things elsewhere. There's a cost to doing that. So it's financing costs, corporate overhead cost. So, yeah, in our analysis base case, we've gone and said prices need to go up because there's a significant amount of spodumene capacity in this case I'm talking about, which isn't economic to develop. But perhaps if we apply some, some, some different assumptions, which are arguably very realistic, um, then, you know, that 50% of, you know, potential capacity that doesn't make sense perhaps becomes 75, 80, perhaps all of the potential capacity that might come online. Um, so, look, we think that we've been very gentle in, in how we've gone about our assumptions and we're still getting an outcome that suggests the prices need to be significantly higher, perhaps even with more realistic um, assumptions or, or um, you know, that, that it's going to make an even stronger case. So I guess, uh, Sam, you know, the, the, the dilemma or the debate that's been going around the industry, I guess, is, is there alternative supply that can replace Bodgerman if you're going to go straight to, you know, integrated or lipidolite or those kind of things, I guess that's really for me been 
the central part of the argument is you know, the suggestion that somehow low-grade lipid, a very low-grade lipidolite with high impurities can now operate on a you know cost curve that's lower than the numbers that that you're mentioning and than than we look at. And I guess the debate is going to come down to not only can you maintain operations at eleven, twelve, thirteen thousand dollars a ton, but you could you know, some argue grow and we're struggling with that concept. Where do you stand, you know, in that? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, if you look at the, the numbers that we've, um, you know, the projects that we've put together, so on the carbonate um, curve, you know, we've got a total of about 1.3 to 1.4 million LCE of, you know, undeveloped capacity that, we, that we've analyzed. And that means that's inclusive of the spodumene um, capacity that I mentioned, we obviously have a separate curve for as well. So, yeah, that's effectively a doubling of today's market um, already. What we don't have on that curve is some of those, um, you know, Chinese lipidolites. You know, there's a few reasons for that. Um, you know, one is the reliability of information and actually being able to to actually generate those cash flow models that we need for each project. Secondly. You know, you could argue that you know, if, if you're a believer that they are at the top end of the cost curve, that there's some sort of subsidy, um, you know, I guess, program, if you like. It's probably formalising a bit much in China to keep some of those operations running. So therefore, they probably wouldn't be particularly useful additions to analysis um, such as this. And and really, I think the, the final point on that is to, you know, why they're not included is, and I guess this is a bit of an unknown, how much capacity is actually there when we're talking about 1.3 million LCEs of you know, capacity we've looked at elsewhere uh, is you know the addition of another few hundred thousand LCEs of lipidolite actually going to change the conclusion of what we're talking about here? You know, we're talking about significant deficits you know, as you look at, whether you look at you know, benchmark minerals numbers or fast markets numbers or whoever's numbers, if you look at on a supply-demand basis, you know, the deficits are huge. You know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands, if not over the millions of LCEs. So you know, we think we've captured the lion's share of that potential new supply for the remainder of this decade. Um, and and you know, whether we're looking across you know, the, the, the carbonate curve or the deeds, the spodumene curve, you know, there's there's still a case um, that we need all of that. Um, so I don't think we're at the point yet where necessarily we're talking about, say, spodumene being completely replaced. I mean, if you look at a comparison I mentioned between the two curves of data we have at the moment, um, you know, I mentioned around 50% of potential new spodumene capacity um, shouldn't be built. On the carbonate curve, which also includes spodumene with an allowance for conversion cost, um, you know, the number is a little bit different. It's around 15, 20% of potential carbonate um, capacity shouldn't be built. So, you know, what that perhaps tells us is that, you know, there has been probably a little bit of um, the current um, spodumene price is probably overly discounted um, on a relative basis versus where carbonates come back to. Um, and perhaps we need to see a little bit of a re re reconnection in there. And I think on a spot basis, 
carbonates, uh, sorry, spodumene's around 5% of the carbonate price at this point. It's obviously averaged closer to 10% over the course of the last 10 years or so. So perhaps we've seen a bit of an overcorrection um, in that and some of the some of the near-term um, production cuts and, and rationing announcements that we've seen you know, may, um, may be the catalyst for that to sort of, I guess, recorrect. And Sam, just... Yeah. You've got, you've got the curve there. So um, I guess one of the other, you know, one of the other things that caught us off guard is everyone feels five to 10 years to build the mine and so on. But the truth is if the price is high enough, you can get DSO and other things up in a matter of months in some, you know, jurisdictions. So that kind of threw us out. But, you know, that's what $80 a kilo gets you. You open Pandora's box. But I suppose my question is, how should investors look at it? Is there a risk that we now have seen a huge pivot out of some other commodities into lithium because that's what was paying, that's where you could raise money, that's where you could go and search? Are we, are we you know, is there a danger of, of material discoveries being made that aren't in that chart and, you know, where funding, ramp up, etc., depending on who does the discovery, you know, could you know, the timelines could change and, and cost. Is there, a, I guess it's just a question, is there a risk? How do you look at that? Yeah, look, I think that's, that's, a, that's a really good question. I, I think, again, and you know, I'm sort of drawing on experience from, from other commodities as well, um, you know, where you've had this extreme price reaction and then you obviously get, you know, a, a, a desire of, of, you know, people on the supply side to try and pile in to take advantage of that. Um, you know, the question is how sustainable is some of that? You mentioned DSO, for example. I mean, yeah, it was sort of all the rage 12 months ago to say, well, we're going to have some early DSO before we get the plant up and running and whatever operation you're talking about. And we're just going to give us some early cash flow. And, and that seemed like a fantastic plan. When, as you say, you know, the, the prices we were at 80,000 um, a tonne or, or, um, or yeah, 8,000 a, a tonne for, uh, for spodumene. That made sense, but obviously we saw how swiftly that material, you know, just wasn't feasible anymore. So perhaps you could argue that, you know, you do get some capping of, of peaks in pricing, you know, you, but I think that this is part and parcel of a market maturing is that, you know, you start sell, you're not going to sell DSO when there's actually, you know, good quality spodumene that can be easily processed into a 6% concentrate available. And that takes money to process. So I think that, yes, there is, you know, some potential for quick solutions to, you know, a, a, an intense and acute supply deficit. But, you know, this is a, a high capex industry. Um, you know, you, you're going to, you're still going to, you're going to have to need time and investment to actually have sustainable ongoing supply and again as the industry matures one would think that the you know the, the precursor manufacturers and, and the you know and the, the, gen, the oems themselves that are consumers here they're going to want to see consistency and reliability of supply um yeah and, and to do that you know, you're going to need to see proper planning and proper investment um in you know high quality operations that can do that on a regular basis um, you know, we look at, again, taking some parallels. 
We look at the iron ore industry over the course of the last 20 odd years, you know, there've been some fantastic price spikes at different times. And when we saw that, um, you know, there was very low grade, poor material being sold to steel mills in places like China, less so to places like Japan. Um, but as the steel industry matured in China, and it was already fairly mature in Japan, there became a bias for quality. So, you know, and it was important that, you know, that you have sustainable, reliable, um, you know, well-operated suppliers. And I think that, you know, the lithium industry, certainly if we're talking about the you know, upstream spodumene, um, you know, that, should, that will progress in that manner as well. Jumping in here from the editing room to tell you about Lithium Royalty Corp. Lithium Royalty Corp is at the center of a global energy transition and manages a globally diversified portfolio of lithium-focused royalties in electrification and decarbonization. With 32 royalties on 29 higher-grade, lower-cost projects from exploration to production, LIRC covers all the bases with well-managed risk, ESG considerations, and a scalable royalty structure. Lithium Royalty Corp is traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange ticker symbol LIRC. To find out more, visit lithiumroyaltycorp.com. Sam, do you have any experience in the aluminum industry? Uh, uh, yeah, a little. Because, like, I very much want to believe in this iron ore analogy, and we have, you know, promoted it, you know, quite a bit. You know, life is good, L-I-F-E. Um, but, you know, the bauxite to alumina to aluminum, right? You know, if I look at Alcoa, a 130-year-old company, it has like a nine billion or six billion or something like that market cap. Um, why should Albemarle, you know, be a 30, 50 billion market cap, you know, like a Freeport is, you know, like why isn't, you know, I, I, like aluminum has Russia, you know, over the years and, and China, but like just China just like overbuilt and they've overbuilt like a lot in a lot of industries, you know, copper, you know, solar panels. You know, we keep pointing to iron ore as like a better example or the hoped for, you know, good example, but there are many more examples, you know, where it's worked in the wrong direction, right? You know, yeah. and aluminum and aluminum, you know, goes into military aircraft and like aluminum is not necessarily so commodity, like it is a specialty alloy, you know, just like a specialty chemical that's going into batteries. So why isn't you know, the future of lithium destined to be, you know, the loser industry of aluminum uh, rather yeah. than the bullish industry of iron ore? I think that's a great question and don't have a definitive answer, but I wrote a few thoughts. Um, and it's something I've spoken a lot to, to investors about is that, as you're pointing out, at one end of the spectrum, you've got the iron ore industry. Um, but then at the other end of the spectrum, you, and aluminium is the perfect example because bauxite mining is very similar to iron ore mining. Uh, you know, it's not actually that dissimilar a product. And you know, in iron ore, the market has evolved such that there is a, a, a material um, you know, and, and very established um, sort of third-party merchant conversion industry known as the steel industry, whereas in bauxite, the bauxite industry, there isn't really an active third party, you know, there's a little bit of trading there, but effectively you've got that integrated capacity. So anyone who has an Illumina refinery obviously typically owns bauxite capacity as well. And that's 
fully integrated through the, the supply chain. Now, why the two differences? Um, you know, it, it's a very difficult one to say. You know, I suspect that with aluminium, you know, most of your strategic advantage is in having, you know, you've got, for aluminium, the power and electricity cost is a huge cost in the overall cost of producing a ton of aluminium. And so the actual benefit or the rent can be extracted in that whole value chain by the, the company that has the best power deal at the end, and then you backwardly integrate. In the case of iron ore, um, you, know, you, you don't have that same, you have much more cost base producing a ton of steel in actually, um, in actually the cost of the iron ore of the raw materials. So, so, and bauxite is a tiny portion of the cost of aluminium. So it all comes down to how this industry evolves. Basically, I think that you know, where, where the, the economic rent is extracted, is it in the extraction of the raw material or is there some differentiated factor in the downstream processing that actually makes the difference and how the lithium industry ends up, you know, there's gonna be lots of people with different opinions. I think it, it's a really difficult one to, to put a finger on right now because again, as I mentioned at the top of the call, um, yeah, this is an industry that's still maturing and evolving and, and yeah, supply chains evolving and how it's gonna play out, I think it's very difficult to, to tell. And you know, that's why, you know, for example, Livent and, and, and Allchem, you know, one of the rationales for their deal was to try and have a foot in all camps effectively, uh, because I don't think anyone really knows exactly how that that value chain is gonna is gonna end up. Um, but I think yeah, that's that's the key as to whether we end up like aluminium or iron ore. So sorry, I don't have a a proper answer for you there on that one. Alan. No, no, that was that was a very. No, I don't think anyone does, but everyone's making this iron ore analogy and I'm just trying to, as an active investor, you always have to kind of like test your thesis, you know, based on, you know, new information. And we're hearing like Rio Tinto is interested in lithium. Uh, they're very big in aluminum in um, Quebec because Quebec has low cost, cheap, clean electricity, you know, so... Is, isn't cheap electricity relevant in the steel industry? You know, is it relevant in the lithium industry? Um, you know, and if, you know, Quebec, you know, Alcoa and Rio, you know, um, have, I don't know, there are 11, 12 alumina and aluminum plants, you know, in Quebec. And if we all of a sudden have a bunch of spodumene mines and hydroxide and possibly carbonate plants, in Quebec, you know, again, it goes back to, you know, um, those businesses aren't very profitable. Like, like Rio Tinto makes money from iron ore. They don't make money from aluminum. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we, where do we go on, on this? So I, I, there's no answer here that I'm just raising the question and I was just curious about it. Um, and to Rodney's point, you know, again, you're suggesting we're going to have a structural deficit. You know, you look at benchmarks numbers, you know, in the future, it just shows structural deficit. But five years ago, um, they were forecasting a structural deficit now, you know, and actually the gigawatt hours deployed are much higher than they had forecast. And they were saying mines will never catch up. Right. But, but yeah. mines have caught up and like have overtaken. So like all through COVID, 
uh, um, China built a ton of conversion capacity. And then when the prices rose and Rodney says like, look, you know, structural deficit depends on the price, right? Like, so if you have all the conversion capacity available in China, um, then a lot of supply will kind of come on stream. So, so, and you know, none of us that kind of like forecasted that. So, and Rodney was kind of making the point, how many mines are there in Africa that are maybe not in the 40 that you analyzed, right? You know, that could come on stream a lot faster. Uh, and also if it's like, you know, somewhat subsidized, there's also this question of, you know, qualification, right? You, you know, they're, oh, you know, it was only Ganfeng, it was only Tangxi, it was only Albemol and, and Livent, you know, a few years ago that was qualified with tier one battery manufacturers, right? But now like Sichuan Yawa, I think is qualified. There was just an announcement, Pilbara with Chengjin. Um, I don't know if they're qualified with tier, actually they said in their customer mix, it was BYD, it was SK Innovation, it was others. There's also this movement to more LFP, you know, which is and carbonate, you know, is kind of like less stringent. So this gets to, I guess, the lithium is like really hard to make and it's especially chemical and you know, therefore only a few players can make it and, and therefore there should be a, you know, a, a premium for that. But it, it seems like it's becoming more commoditized um, and more Chinese, You're not hearing about qualification, right? Like it just, all these converters were built during the pandemic and they're taking crap DSO and other crappy product and you know they're going into all this battery demand they may not be going into tesla like, like i don't know we're hearing that there are have been a bunch of battery fires in some two-wheelers um you, you know so this quality that you talked about that over time the steel industry required more quality maybe could you assess this kind of question and then after that let's go into your stock picks yeah, sure. I mean, look, absolutely. I think that that's, yeah, that's, if I use that iron ore example, then, then you know, arguably you will need that quality um, to evolve um, without question. I think that, you know, to, to, to step back to, I think, one of your first points around, you know, how much capacity might be coming out of places like Africa that's not in our curve. Um, yeah, look, that that's a risk. I mean, as I say, we sort of had to use the criteria of what um, you know, who's got an economic study out. You know, we tried to look at who potentially else there is, and yet again, I'd sort of make similar points what I made earlier when Ronnie asked about pedalites is you know capacity from from there. The, the stuff that's not on the curve, I don't think there's enough capacity to change the conclusion of the curve. If that makes sense, sure, the exact numbers themselves might move around a little bit, um, but, but I, I don't think there's there's enough there um, at this point to do that. As I say, I think we've got the lion's share, and the thematic is is, is still valid. Um, you know, no, no matter where the where the source um, is 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 coming from. Okay, great. Uh, so we have, uh, you have five companies under coverage, uh, you labeled Atlantic as your top pick and actionable now. Um, and then you had, you know, questions, you know, around Liontown, Leo Lithium and core, and then you had long-term prospect being Ioneer. So 
let's uh, let's focus on Atlantic first, and then I kind of Leo Lithium as well, just you know on the Africa theme. Um, yeah. But you talk about quality. Atlantic has Atlantic's a client of ours, so you know we're biased. You know, do your own research. Um, but they clearly have a quality or you know DMS only. You know the. the um, but why is it? I guess actionable now. Um, yep. and, and a question I have is like, why they're under bid, right? From ASOR and you had all this bid activity in Western Australia and the stocks went up, you know, pretty close to the bid price, you know, and yep. that didn't happen, you know, in Atlantic's case. So why, you know, what's yeah. the argument? <laughs> Look, I mean, I, um, yeah, I'll, you, you've obviously mentioned there, a client of yours, you know, I'll, I'll put, hands up here and say, you know, I've been a fan of Atlantic for a number of years. Um, you know, I covered them in my previous role in the UK, obviously UK listed as well. And I've, I've um, you know, continued that coverage in Australia. And, and I think that my own observation of the company, both exchanges, um, certainly true a few years ago, but it's, it's still the case, is that it's sort of underappreciated and, and underknown and, and arguably at this point, you know, they, they still don't quite have um, the, the um, critical mass of institutional investor ownership. So it's still a very strong retail presence. Um, and, and, you know, I think, that, you know, that there's reasons for that, um, you know, not least of all things like liquidity um, in each of those markets, you know, it's, it's sort of it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Atlantic listed on the ASX, um, you know what? You're not even 18 months ago, and that was just before lithium prices started to fall. Um, and so you know you have that, um, you know, plus you know perhaps in the Aussie market at least, um, you know a lot of Aussie investors have a preference for what's familiar to them, which is Western Australia, and, and Uganda seems a long way away. Um, so, yeah, there's perhaps a little bit of behavioural finance here as to why uh, Atlantic probably hasn't done as well as what, um, you know, I certainly would like to think they, they should um, without question. So, I mean, obviously you had the Asor bid, uh, you know, and the price spiked, but it was only temporary and it didn't stay around there. I just don't think that the name, you know, for, for, for you know, despite my own best efforts and the company's best efforts is... I don't think that the benefits and the virtues of this project and this business are truly understood by the broader investment community just yet. And, and in that, you know, it presents an opportunity. And, you know, you talk about, you know, my, how I've labelled it actionable now. Yeah, and that would be one of the reasons why is because it's just, it, it's still not quite, people don't quite understand, I think, what it is and the opportunity there. I think that the work that the company have done over the past 12 months in particular in de-risking the project, in working with the Ghanaians, um, you know, to get the, the, the MIF, the Sovereign Wealth Fund investment, to get the mining license over the line, I think has been outstanding. Um, you know, I think, you know, obviously the DFS itself uh, was delivered last year. Um, you know, there's a lot of work gone into de-risking. That, unfortunately for Atlantic, it's all come against the backdrop of you know the lithium price falls we saw over the course of 2023. So that means that a lot of investors uh, sort of uh, stepped away or lost interest in the sector because I think that if Atlantic had the news flow that they had in 2023, that had happened in 2022, I think the share price would be 
a real a real sort of um, a level up from where it is now. So you know, but that's that's okay. Um, as I say, that that's why it's actionable now. This opportunity, that the project is progressing well. Um, I think that you know, just this week, the company um, put out some great drill hole results. Um, you know, on their step out extensional drilling. You know, they had an 83 meters, I think it was, at about a percent, uh, 47 meter hit. You know, we did some work in our research, and we haven't spoken about this report, but um, we did a report late last year where we went and analyzed, um, you know, thousands upon thousands of drill holes from West Australian lithium sector. And, you know, the, the, the conclusion in simple terms was that, you know, if you're getting plus 50 meter intercepts at an acceptable grade, um, you know, for spodumene ex exploration, that's a really good leading indicator that you're going to have a plus 50 million tonne resource, you know, but once, once all the drilling's all said and done. Very high level sort of rule of thumb, but nonetheless, you've got a warrior sitting at 35 million tonnes at the moment, and now they're starting to get these, you know, very long continuous hits. Um, so, you know, I think that the, the, the likelihood that this ends up north of 50 million tonnes is very, very strong. So you've got de-risking your project, progressing well. You've still got exploration upside. You've got the fact that, you know, that at this point, they've still got 50% of the offtake uncommitted, which where they are in the world, given the fact that North America is a demand centre, Europe is a demand centre, clearly lagged China, um, you know, having high-quality spodumene, not necessarily on their doorstep, certainly a lot closer than Western Australia. Um, you know, I think that you know, it's highly likely that someone will jump on that. Um, I spoke a lot in my research about the fact that, you know, look, Piedmonts are in there with 50% of the offtake and, and an option to, 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 to make sure they get to 50% of the asset. But um, as I understand it, there's no preemptive rights that Piedmont holds. Um, if there is a, a, a third-party bid for Atlantic Lithium, um, you know, that means that any bid for Atlantic Lithium would be an open contest, which is rare, I think, in this sector. And then probably a lot of people don't, aren't aware of that. They would think that Piedmont would effectively have uh, the, the, that clause tied up, which, which they don't. So, look, I think that from just an organic project development perspective, but also from a potential acquisition perspective, Atlantic Lithium is a, is, a, is a fantastic option. I've probably rambled on about that for too long, but I'm a big no, fan. No, no, it's, it's, it's fine. No, you, you said the story is not well understood, and uh, here you have an opportunity to uh, help our viewers, you know, understand it. Um, you know, I want to just challenge you a little bit. You, you, you kind of mentioned that um, it's a, mostly a retail-held stock. It's not like an institutional-held stock. I mean, do you think that you know, in, in my experience, you know, retail investors can bid stocks up to much higher valuations that institutions can. Like if you look at Sayana, you know, Lake, AVZ back in the day, this didn't have very much like institutional ownership. It was retail excitement that like kind of drove the stock up. So in your experience, is, is that like institution versus retail dichotomy determining value um, correct? I think that, uh, yeah, you make a really good point. Um, yes, absolutely. Retail, you know, strong retail presence on the register can take stocks very, very high. Um, I guess the, depending on your, your, your investment philosophy and investment approach, 
the, the issue is that they typically tend to be short-lived because retail by its nature comes in and out, they pile in in volume and you can take values very, very high. But often, um, you know, they'll also exit with the same speed. Um, and so, you know, if, you, if we're looking at balance and building a company that's reflective of, of, of its value longer term, I think, you know, having a substantial institutional presence on the register just gives you that, that ballast, um, if you like. Now, to be fair, the Atlantic have got some big strategic holders, so perhaps, you know, that's in lieu of um, institutions. You know, they've got Asaw, they've got Piedmont, or slightly less Piedmont recently um, on the register. Uh, but the issue is that that's not traded, you know, and so you know, I've mentioned the liquidity, I think, is 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 a barrier for some institutions to, to get involved. But look, it's not a deal breaker by any sense. If stock does well, the retail community can take it higher and higher. Um, but it's, it's sort of, it perhaps can help reduce a bit of volatility if you've got a few institutions on the register, typically. In my experience, I mean, this has a big retail following, you know, out of London, um, but they moved to Australia because AIM is lame, right, is what we say all the time. Um, and Australia understands hard rock, uh, but maybe you're right, the timing wasn't great, uh, but maybe they don't love Africa in, uh, in Australia. But, you know, if you think that this could be a 50 million ton, this is a very easily understandable, um, you know, project. But you also do have AVZ and Leo Lithium in trading halt, um, you know, as Africa stories. Yeah. Uh, Ghana is uh, a different political risk. Maybe you could kind of talk about that, talk about Leo Lithium, but also from a fundamental value point of view, why do you think Atlantic is cheap? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, as I said, I, I've spent a lot of time my career in London and, and, and broking in, in London on, say, Atlantic. Um, you know, there's much more an appreciation amongst the investment community, whether it be retail or institution, of Africa. And, and perhaps that's um, yeah, more so than, than in Australia. And I think that's, that's not um, to be negative towards Australian-based investors at all. It's more that they've been you know, they, we, Australians have been very fortunate in that there hasn't been a need to go to Africa. Whereas if you're based in some of these big centres in Europe, you know, there's not many mines uh, in and around uh, London, Greater London area. So you, know, you, you have by necessity to obviously go a bit further afield. Whereas Australians have been very lucky to have some of the most fantastic um, industry in their backyard. So, you know, I do spend quite a bit of time <laughs> Uh, trying to explain to, to investors from all different walks of life, retail and, and institutional, you know, that Ghana is is not Mali. Um, you know, the Ghana Ghanaian track record, for example, in, in the gold mining sector is is outstanding. And you know, and and I think that you know, I mentioned before the the relations and the, the progress that Atlantic have made in the last twelve months. And I think the Ghanaians have shown best practice for you know how to. To, to work with a, a new developer in a new industry, you know, obviously new new mining code for, for green metals. And, and I think the way that they've, they've um, instituted that and publicized it and consulted has been absolutely first class. Um, you know, and that stands in stark contrast to, to what we're seeing in Mali at the moment. Um, and look, just, just to, to, to say on that basis, 
Um, I'll quickly touch on you know, fundamental value in the Atlantic before I move on to Mali and Leo. Um, you know, on that basis, you know, we're comfortable that you know, when I go and calculate an, an MPV or a discounted cash flow for a warrior and for, for Atlantic more broadly, you know, that's, that's, that matches what my price target is for the stock. You know, we're up at over a dollar a shares. Shares are currently less than 40 cents. Um, you know, and I'm happy to, to stick by that with conviction that the stock should trade to our valuation. Whereas with, uh, you know, a, 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 a Leo, so it's not trading at the moment, with the issues in Mali, um, you know, we, we have a fundamental valuation just looking at Gulamina, quality of that asset, on the basis of our, you know, our price view, um, that, you know, we have a fundamental MPV of, of about $2 a share um, for, for Leo Lithium. But, you know, I've got the stock at a 45 cent target on a market weight recommendation, which is effectively like a hold, um, purely because yeah, I, I, I struggle now with any conviction to see a pathway to how the market's going to recognise and be willing to pay for that full freight or full value for business in Mali, given, you know, just in the last week, and look, that move down to a hold for, um, for Leo Lithium is only recent. That was part of this report that, that we're talking about today. I previously had it on a buy because of that fundamental upside to the valuation. But just in the last week, and you know, I'm not sure how well publicised it's been, but the political situation in Mali has changed significantly just in the past week for me in that previously, you know, two years ago, you had ECOWAS, which is like this African, North Africa, West African EU, it's sort of trading and political union, um, put sanctions on Mali post the last um, military coup um, and, and made them commit to a timeline for democratic elections. That was agreed as being this month, February 2024, um, and that was the expectation. Late last year, um, you had um, news flow out of Mali that might slip a little bit. Um, but now, just in the last 10 days, you've had news flow that Mali has actually decided to exit ECOWAS, um, and there is absolutely no timeline to democratic elections. So for me, you know, the, the, the nation was moving in a better direction geopolitically. Now they're moving, uh, I think, in the opposite direction, and it's a concern. So, you know, Leo is a really tough one because, you know, by all reports, you know, they, the actual construction of Gulamina has been progressing relatively unhindered. Um, you know, it should be a great asset, obviously, with a big truck and distance to port. Um, but, you know, how that then, how that value flows through into a stock like Leo, you know, an ASX listed stock with a minority stake in the asset is is a bit more questionable now. Okay, that's very helpful. Um, it's kind of a moot point to uh, kind of have a buy on a stock that's in trading halt. So uh, not not too uh, risky of you to uh, say to hold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think, I think everyone will be following my recommendation. <laughs> um, but the, but the bigger question. Um, from our perspective, we don't care so much about Leo Lithium. Like we're, we're trying to actually figure out like from a structural deficit, you know, what kind of supply component tree and Rodney keeps, you know, very detailed models. Um, I think he was modeling something like 150 or 120,000 tons of spodumene to come from 
Gulamina this year, right? And that's supposed to ramp up to 500,000, I think, next year. Uh, yep. Ganfang, which has had problems in, uh, in Mexico with Bacanora, I think they're getting an impairment there. You're kind of saying like, you know, the operations are fine, all this like political problems in Mali, it's, you know, but we're hearing, I don't know, you know, some terrorists, you know, going after some gold that's trying to be shipped out of Mali. Like, is there yeah. a risk that this project gets slowed down and then those who have Gulamina in their models, because our thesis, a lot of the story here is what kind of supply might not come on stream, which might impact, you know, pricing yeah. uh, in the short term. So what's yeah. your assessment on uh, discontinuing? No, I understand what you're saying there, because it's obviously, you know, theoretically, as you point out, it's going to be a big part of, of a lot of people's supply models in the course of the next 12, 24 months. Um, yeah, as I say, look, I've got a few um, people I know that work in and around um, the industry and, and, you know, from what I'm hearing, as I say, from an operational perspective, um, or a project construction perspective, things have been progressing sort of largely on track. Um, and yeah, look, is there no risk? Of course not. I mean, yeah, there's obviously security risks in Mali. I mean, Gulamina is, is located in a part of the country that's probably less susceptible to, to those issues. It's more up in the north um, where I think most of the security concerns will be. But yes, absolutely, it's a risk. Um, although on the flip side, you know, while the Malians, from, from what I understand, have clearly been trying to, been squeezing, you know, Leo and, and, and trying to extract, um, you know, all the sort of benefits they can out of these guys, you know, through, and, you know, we had Leo announced recently, there'll probably be some sort of financial settlement once they conclude their discussions with the government. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, Mali is, is, is a very poor nation. And I think they need and want this operation to get up and running and start to actually generate income for the country. Now, my concern from a Leo perspective is, you know, what will their ownership stake be and, and how and what part will they play? But I think that the operation itself, um, you know, with, with Ganfeng in there, obviously, as a, as a, as a, a very hefty representative of China Inc., uh, as it were, um, you know, will, will certainly um, mean that the operation will likely get up and running. Maybe it's not quite as swift as they initially had hoped, but I would be surprised if the operation, um, you know, wasn't a priority. Um, it just depends on who extracts the most money out of it, whether it's Leo or Ganfeng or indeed the Malian authorities. Uh, to be honest, I don't care so much on the Leo side uh, because at this point yep. it's, it, it's a, it's a gang, you know, it, it's a stub of an equity ownership, right? It's, it's hard to buy a stock, you know, that has less than 50% ownership, yes. but um, you know, there, there's a big dynamic in the industry of China going to Africa because China can't go to North America. They can't go to Europe, you know, and other places. And you have a number of companies in kind of Zimbabwe, uh, Ganfeng, you know, the, the, the cornerstone of Ganfeng's operations is Mount Marion, you know, and, but with Gulamina getting to 500,000, you know, the dynamic there will change. And, and the, I don't know how that might impact the relationship with Minres, et cetera. But if there's some sort of a glitch because of political problems, you know, in the country, 
Uh, but China's, you know, they're happy to work in the DRC. They're happy to work in other places. I mean, Ganfeng's a very professional, awesome company. Um, and they've had to venture, you know, you know, quite far afield. I just uh, wonder, but you're saying uh, the Mali government that's needs the, money. That's what I'm hearing at this point. Yeah, the, yeah okay. The, the construction. I haven't, I haven't visited Mali recently for obvious okay. reasons. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't that, have that, a... That, that's all good. <laughs> Let's go to the other one with questions, you know. Is Liontown going to be producing spodumene in the middle of this year? I'm saying yes. Um, you know, I believe that, you know, this, again, you know, I was at, at Kathleen Valley um, in the second half of last year. Um, you know, I, for what it's worth, I was pretty impressed with the, the, the progress they're making. You know, the company announcements have said that the project is 72% complete. Uh, obviously, you know, I'm sure that that can vary depending on how they measure that. Um, but nonetheless, you know, the company remains committed to the fact that they should finish construction by the middle of the year. The key question mark here, and as you point out, you know, the question marks, it's sort of categorised under that in our research, is is the funding gap. We obviously had big headlines uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago um, that after Wood Mackenzie changed their lithium price deck, that uh, you had spooked the bank, the lending syndicate that, that gave... Um, commitment to Liontown for a $760 million Aussie facility. Um, and so Liontown have said that they've got cash in the bank, sort of $500 million on Aussie to finish construction. The issue, though, of course, is particularly in a lower lithium price environment, is you know, they're going to need another $150 million out of working capital to ramp that operation up in the second half of this calendar year. Um, you know, we, we would think they would like to maintain a, a balance, a cash balance of at least 150 million as well. So we're saying they're around 300 to 350 million dollars Aussie short in terms of funding to actually get this project to positive cash flow, not just through the end of construction. So at the moment, again, all reports are the construction is progressing well. Um, the, the issue over the next couple of months is what's the funding solution going to be? You know, is it going to be you know, the same banking syndicate with a lower amount of funding? Is there going to be you know, some sort of offtake funding? Is, um, you know, is, is Gina Reinhardt and Hancock Prospecting going to stump up some sort of form of funding as well? And so at the moment, why I've, I've got Liontown is with question marks is not really questioning the asset necessarily it's timeline at this point just because you've got this big question mark on how they're going to fill that funding gap um i think once that's done and you know and and the market has reacted to however dilutionary or otherwise or costly that financing is then you know what you have is an operation that you know is pretty close to producing uh, and arguably that would be the time um to to have another look at it Right. I think in your note here, you have uh, what incentive price is necessary for, uh, yeah, here we have uh, Leo Lithium, you're saying Atlantic Lithium, the, the, the break-even price is 629, the incentive price 820. Town right. break-even price 743, and the incentive price 1030, right? So the price right. is not at the incentive price today, and they have a funding gap. You know, yep. this is one of those projects that shouldn't get funded. And they, they shouldn't be in production in the middle of the year. 
Yeah, I mean, look, that's that's um, that's a very good point. I mean, at the moment, um, yeah. So what that tells us is, you know, the the lending syndicate obviously have to believe that the prices are going to go above thousand bucks a ton. No, but they're um, using Woodmax, so the, you know they had. So a, they're not going to. They right had, they had now, material yeah. adverse change clause or whatever. So, yeah, I, you know, the syndicate's not going to suddenly say, oh, you know, let's use Benchmark or you know, a blend of fast markets, right there. So, you know, Gina Reinhardt may come in, you know, but like, but if she, if she comes in, like, is it prudent to rush to like come to market, you know, with those tons um, in this market environment, or is it more, I mean, they've drawn down on, on Ford. I don't know when they need to yeah, pay totally that. Totally you, know, so, you know, I don't think that Ford wants to be a miner. Um, like, so they're, but they could sell their debt. They, they're, they could do something there, but I just, it seems unlikely that they should, why rush to like to try to get into production in the middle of this year, right? And sell into, you know, a market that is not yet healthy, you know, on speculation that it might be, yeah. right? Like no one knows, we don't know. The prudent thing the, is the, to wait. You make a good point, Howard, about, I think, you know, they've obviously in a long time talked about, um, you know, pulling back on CapEx for the sort of phase two, development, pulling the plant up to, I think it's 4 million tons per annum, um, you know, staying at sort of phase one, so, you know, probably pushing that out. I, I guess the, the difficult um, part for, you know, companies when you're making this level of capital investment is the more you delay, the more it costs you. You know, you just, you just another month delay in, in, you know, before you get to positive cash flow is another month of working capital that you're burning um, to get there. So. Yeah, as long as I would imagine that they believe they can make cash, so not necessarily the incentive price, but as long as they think they can actually make cash on an operating basis, um, you know, post the working capital for ramp up, I would be surprised if they voluntarily pushed it materially out. Okay. Well, core shut down. Um, what price do you think, uh, uh, you know, so they made that decision, the costly decision to shut down. Um, what price do you think Spodumi needs to be for core to kind of come back? And like, how long does the price need to kind of like be at that price? If you were like in core shoes and said, okay, let's kind of turn it back on. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a really, I'll, I'll give you a number. Um, you know, we've in the research, we've said that cores at, at Finis's break even is just shy of 1100 bucks a ton. Um, but you know, what I'd say is I, I wouldn't call that a high conviction number on our behalf because, you know, Finnis has, you know, only had not much more than six months operating history. Um, you know, none of its performance really matched up to the study levels, um, you know, in the, P, in, the, in, the, in the feasibility studies. So, you know, I think they were still trying to get their, their, their Sort of handle around where they still are around the plants. I mean, the plants been nowhere near study recovery levels. Um, so, you know, we've modelled a, a sort of a recovery in that operation and then starting back up in the start of calendar year 2025. But and have said, you know, they need around that level. Um, but you know, that's that's us. I'm sort of plugging the gaps with a lot of guesswork at this point in time. If you look at uh, if operations go offline and come back on, what would you typically think 
they'd need as a buffer above where they think their costs are in order to make the commitment and the costs and, and get back in. I mean, I would think that's fairly sizable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and look, off the top of my head, I can't recall, we, we have made a significant allowance for working capital to ramp back up because, you know, that sort of 1100 um, number I mentioned as perhaps a break even is when they're back at full capacity, uh, steady state. Um, uh, so, yeah, there, there's obviously going to be a, I mean, yeah, they're reasonably well capitalized at the moment after they did some equity raises last year. But absolutely, there's there's going to need to be a, a bit more spend to, to get to, to recommission a, a project for sure. How confident are you in the work that Liontown did compared to Core? Um, more, more confident, <laughs> I suppose. I think, you know, for, for and look by, you know, the, the the previous management team at Core Lithium, by their own admission, you know, they were pursuing very much a speed to market strategy, um, you know, because and their timing was sublime, right? You know, I talked about Atlantic Lithium, perhaps. You know, having a bunch of good announcements in the wrong year, you know, Core did it sort of you know a couple of years earlier, and 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 you know the share price reaction over the course of 2022, 2021, um, when they were really sort of moving very quickly to get to first cash flow, and when prices were as they were, it sort of didn't really matter if you perhaps didn't have the same depth of due diligence on you know how they're going to develop. BP33, which is the next ore source at Finnis, for example. Um, but I think in the case of Liontown, it's it's you know they haven't adopted that that strategy. You know, they're they're more trying to adopt a probably a, a more robust, longer term, and obviously it's a significantly bigger scale project um, than Finnis. Um, so you know my gut feel at least is that the study work has been done is a little bit more robust than we saw it. Okay, but it's more complex, you know, it's underground. So like, we'll see. Yeah. I'm just we'll hearing see. skepticism from various places that, um, you know, you don't no, know. And when Gina Reinhardt kind of was vulturing around, you know, she was making in her press releases, like announcements like Roy Hill, $10 billion. We understand big projects. Um, this is not so easy, right? They're kind yeah. of illusions. Um, okay. So finally, uh, a sleeper, um, long-term prospect, uh, Ioneer, like, I don't, why do you cover that? Um, well, it, like not that many people covered. It. It's a little bit, um, you know, we like James Calloway. We've known him a while. Um, other than Ken Brinsden, he's the only, uh, CEO of a developer or he's the chairman, executive chairman of, uh, a lithium developer that's done it before. Um, you know, they're partnered with Sabanya. They actually have a loan, you know, Lithium Americas and others are trying to get loans. Um, and they're very far advanced as we understand it in the permitting process. Uh, you know, so I look at, you don't cover Lithium Americas, but Lithium Americas, you know, in, in America, there's all this talk, like they get, a, you know, they have a 600, 700 million market cap. They're going to get a loan catalyst, you know, GM comes in, you know, and then they build the project. Um, you know, but Ioneer is like whatever, 150 million market cap, like meaningfully lower, you know, they already have the loan, right? They just got to get permitted. So like, what's more likely like Ioneer getting, per or from a risk reward perspective, you know, there's permitting catalyst, right? Versus 
loan catalyst, right? You know, and 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 these are often compare these two projects. And and uh, yes, Ioneer has sold fifty percent of the project to Sabanya, but you know, it looks like GM will own thirty percent, you know, of of Lithium Americas. Uh, but there's also the boron, you know, aspect yep. to this. So it's not fully a lithium company, but in this market environment, actually, the boron credit might actually be a positive. Like I'm not invested in Ioneer. I, we, we're not, you know, connected to the company, so I'm not conflicted here at all. I'm just like, I'm looking at the scoreboard and thinking about like, what's cheap, like what's, where are their potential catalysts? And, you know, it's rare that we have someone who actually covers the stock. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and other than Atlantic, it has like your most upside after Atlantic, but you're, you're saying it's a long-term prospect. It's not an actionable now name. Yeah, I mean, look, I think, and you're right. It does, um, it does sit as a, a little bit of a, a little bit outside the box for you know with the rest of the coverage, given everything else is is Um So you know, this is um, I can't really explain that. I think when I was looking around and starting to initiate in the sector, is is one that I thought was very interesting. Um, yeah, for want of anything else. So, look, I think for Ionia, um the you know, it's, and you, you said a sleeper, and actually my initiation, the title uh, sort of strap line for Ioneer was the sleeping giant, um, in that you know, potentially you've got this massive resource, um, you've got, you know, all this offtake already um, agreed, uh, you know, with various different players. So you've got massive resource, offtake in place, Funding in place through the you know the 490 million with Sabanyi and the 700 million through the through the through the, uh, through the DOE, um, and, and so you've got all these tick 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 tick, uh, but as you point out, the, the you know it's it's sort of not not valued very very um, expensively certainly versus some others. Um, so I sort of think it just needs a few catalysts. I mean, clearly, <laughs> probably lithium price going up would be a helpful one. Um, but I think that from a stock specific perspective, um, you've got all those building blocks in place. I think what they need, and, and look, I know, um, you know, the guys there um, have been obviously beavering away in the last um, you know, couple of years, doing a lot of technical de-risking, um, you know, um, on the on the project, on the, the processing. You know, Bernard Rose obviously been, you know, has a, a very strong technical background, has been focusing on on that. Um, I think what the market needs, so because it's been stuck in this permitting stasis um, and because the, you know, the last feasibility study update was 2020, I believe, um, it's sort of been forgotten about by, by the market. When I initiated on it, I did go around talking about it a little bit, you know, in, during 2023, that was the sense I got as well, as a lot of investors were like, oh, yeah, those guys, what's going on with them? Um, so I, I think that it's sort of been a back burner type stock, certainly in the Aussie market. Um, I think that for, you know, that, that sort of value potential to be realized is, you know, I think that through the course of this year, we need to see uh, updated economics, which I know the company are working on. So effectively an updated feasibility study, you know, the, the old CapEx numbers from 2020 are not worth anything nowadays. Um, you know, for example, so we need to see what's the new capex number. You know, how do the new operating costs look? Basically, 
once you take you know, today's assumptions and obviously the de-risking they've done on the technical side, um, they need that. And obviously they need the announcement of you know, the, the final BLM permitting, which, yeah, as you point out, um, theoretically should be uh, imminent. Um, so I think that you know, the, the permitting plus some updated study work, so you, know, you, you really, then you sort of go, okay, well, we've got a business now that got great looking economics, um, you know, it's got permitting done, it's funded, um, you know, now we just got to go and build this. I mean, there's, that's not insignificant risk or process, but yeah, that's, that's suddenly you look at it and can go, why is this so cheap, a heavily de-risked, fully funded project? Um, but until such time as we just get over a few of those hurdles and see some of those catalysts come to market, then it'll probably still sit around where it is. But once that does happen, um, you know, I think it's a very exciting prospect. That's why I've sort of classed it as a more of a long-term option. Got it. Um, appreciate that. Sam Catalano, uh, very nice to meet you. Um, glad, uh, one of our friends uh, forwarded over your note to me. Um, and uh, we got to know uh, each other. Uh, we're, we're, you know, committed to providing differentiated um, and consistent content here uh, as we navigate the lithium bear uh, or ride the uh, velocity. And uh, if I were to, uh, you know, I don't know how much you've watched Rockstock, but uh, you know, we're very much uh, focused on uh, themes uh, to to popular culture and music. Uh, if there was a particular song or band that uh you you would want to most exemplify sam catalano and this uh, podcast uh, what, what song would that be <laughs> oh you really put me on the spot there um yeah i mean uh look uh, i'm a big uh big fan of uh of pearl jam so pick pick whatever you like out of that pearl that jam Okay. Um, <laughs> even flow, Jeremy, yeah. uh, we'll, we'll come up with something. I'll think of something. Okay. Sam, <laughs> thanks. Thanks very much for your pearls of wisdom. No problem. All right. Thanks guys. Take care.